Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect to where your passion and the world's deep needs connect. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited to get to talk to Keith Wasserman, founder and executive director of Good Works Incorporated in Ohio. We talk about his God-given calling that led him to found Good Works and his experiences of being homeless by choice. Good Works is designed to connect people from all walks of life who are struggling with poverty so that the kingdom of God can be experienced. In today's conversation, we talk about the importance of relationship, practical ways to help others, and ways to develop a disposition of a learner. We also find out the many offerings they have to help others and how we can get involved. Let's listen. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I've been looking forward to our conversation for several weeks now, ever since we started going back and forth to set this up. So I'm really grateful that the moment is finally here and that we get to talk. Me too. So I want to start out by getting to know a little bit about you and because you are the founder and executive director of Good Works Incorporated. So just start out, tell me a little bit about Good Works and what that is and how you got started. You know, we read in scripture um, where there is no vision, the people perish or the people are unrestrained. And then we read in the New Testament that in the last days, God will pour out God's spirit and young men will see visions and older men will or women will dream dreams. And I didn't like experience this until I began this ministry. And then I, it kind of hit me. But um, the this is very vision driven. We've never been need driven. And I'm just back up a little bit to the beginning. I became a follower of Jesus in high school. I am Jewish. I grew up in the Jewish capital of Ohio, which at the time was Cleveland Heights. I never met a Christian. In the 16 years I lived there, I came to follow Jesus in a little town called Centerville. I, I renamed it the Land of the Gentiles, and I, I heard the gospel for the first time. And while I'm not going to go into more detail there, my life was transformed. And I graduated high school, which was a miracle because I was a drug addict between the age of 12 and 17. And I came to college, and I knew God had called me to do something with my life. And I just continued to immerse myself in scripture and in Christian community. And out of that came this intense desire to do something with my faith. I had bought a house. We remodeled the basement and we were just ready to do with that resource, whatever God called us to do. And it turned out we were right at the beginning of what we would later call the homeless. At the time we started in the basement of my house in Mm. the fall of 1980, we opened January 1, 1981. None of us had heard the word the homeless. And we don't use that word anymore today, but that was the situation. And we were in a rural context. And uh, I had read Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. It began to just seep into my soul. And I began to select men to live with me. And we did this as a volunteer project. And I was a volunteer operating this thing for the first three years, um, just volunteering my time. And uh, I was running on zeal and joy and energy as we, and it's, it's always been a privilege, but it was a felt privilege to have people come in at that time. And we were caring for them. We were providing them with food and shelter and we were learning so much. And I'll pause there. 
Tell me about, because I don't think of rural Ohio as having a large homeless population. So why did you pick that area? So I went to school here in Athens, Ohio at Ohio University. And this was kind of like my senior class project. I had gotten permission from my professors to do an internship by creating the space in my home. And, and there wasn't a visible problem. And we've never been need driven. We've always been vision driven. And a lot of the initiatives we're doing today came out of a vision. We were the first organization in our community to start a public meal. There was no such thing going on. And we started later, we started this thing called the Transformation Station. A lot of what we're doing, and we're the first or maybe the oldest rural shelter in Ohio. Uh, I don't know how far you go back before 1981. But um, so these were the just the joy and the energy and the dreams that we began to form with structure, and um, it's been it's been good. It's been fruitful. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. Um, so, just tell us in a nutshell, what is the Good Works community? So, the mission of Good Works is to connect people from all walks of life with people struggling with poverty, so that the kingdom of God can be experienced. And it's audacious because it's not that the kingdom of God can be read about or talked about or discussed, but the vision is for the actual experience of the reign and rule of God in people's lives. And we have a lot of people that we are praying this to happen, and it's happening. It's really exciting to me uh, just this morning. We had a uh, a story of a, a volunteer that's working with our kids program that asked to come to church with one of our staff. And you know, that's not the only mechanism, you know, but that's one mechanism of connecting to a community. So we're seeing people impacted. And, and the, 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 the broad vision of Good Works is to care for widows and children caught in what I would describe as the crossfire of poverty and parenting and to, and to create a space to care for people without homes. Uh, those were uh, the old language was the homeless. Again, we don't use that language anymore. And language is very, very important yes. to us. Um, so choosing language that builds bridges rather than walls is really important to us. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of language and how we can use that to build bridges with other people? Sure. I, I was having lunch with Kevin and uh, we're actually eating at Chipotle and he says, I'm homeless. And I said, Kevin, I looked him in the eye. I said, Kevin, you are not homeless. And he looks back at me. He says, well, I'm living in your shelter. I said, Kevin, I'm smiling now. I said, Kevin, you're not homeless. I said, Kevin, you're a man who right now is without a home. And I say that to say that we must separate what's happened to people from reinforcing an identity that the world gives them. You may remember in James 1, 26 and 27, that this, the writer says, pure religion in the sight of God our Father is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Many people stop there. But the rest of the phrase says this, and to keep oneself unstained or unpolluted by the world. And I think the world can stain our language, and we will unintentionally use phrases that we have inherited that are just not dignifying, not honoring, and can be reinforcing a a negative stigma. For example, you and I would never say, oh, yeah, this is Bill, my disabled friend. We would never do that anymore. We would say, hi, right, right. my friend Bill, who has a disability. So there are a myriad of examples of how we do this, particularly as we're talking about people in poverty. And I'm very much more reluctant to use the word the poor 
Um, I I know it's in scripture, but I'm fine. I'm trying to find widow uh, language. You know, we we back off from using the phrase "we serve widows." Um, we serve older women who are in a season of life, many of whom have lost their husbands. Well, that's a much longer phrase, but it's much more dignifying. I love thinking about how we can use language to give dignity to other people and also hope to them as well. So the gospel, if it's really good news, um, will bring dignity. Um, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction because that's clearly what happens. But the way in which we carry out mission should be infused with dignity. And our culture has slipped into some thinking patterns, which I think are very unhealthy. For example, um, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Well, that's good. I was sick and you came to me or you visited me. Well, Jesus puts both of those on an equal plane. But in our modern day culture, we would tend to lean into the doing for and providing as somehow being more important when it's not, when it's not. And actually, um, we have these three concepts. I, I got this. They're not original. They're called do for, do with, and be with. And a lot of us are caught in the mm. trap of thinking about loving others in the do for mentality. Can I get you something? Are you comfortable? Is there anything else I can do for you? And some people get stuck there. Now, I realize it may be a starting place. But in the kingdom economy, let's not get stuck there. And so we've created innumerable ways in our ministry for people to do things with others. And I can talk specifically about that if you want. But the, the third, of course, is being with. And in the kingdom economy, the, uh, mm -hmm. the scriptures teach us, and you know, there's the living word and the written word, that being with people is not less significant than doing things for them. And so we create space, again to just value being. Let's talk about that, like how you create space to move from the doing for to the doing with and the being with. So we operate a home for people who have no place to live. We're the only home in eight or nine counties here in rural Ohio. We This is our 40th year of doing this. And I will say I've learned more through failure than through- Wow, success, that's awesome. But God has given us grace. And um, we've never had a dishwasher. So uh, using the ethic of inefficiency, which I can talk about later, we do the dishes rather than put them into a dishwasher. And that means that several people have to work together. So we have volunteers and residents and staff, and we make this a part of the meal. It's not less important than the preparation, but we use that as a means by which we get to know each other and we're focused on the dishes. We're not focused on each other. The each other conversation is more on the periphery. Well, there are many examples that we have of doing things with each other. And I can give you another one. Um, it takes a little bit of a backstory, but GoodWorks has a program we call the Transformation Station, where we invite people to get five things that they need. And they are furniture, appliances, bicycles, non-emergency food, and automobiles. This is the 15th year. We just provided car number wow. 185 last Thursday. And this is a sweat equity initiative. And so someone will call us and they'll say, I heard I could get a car. They go on a waiting list and then their, their time comes up and then we invite them to come and serve. And what they do is they join us as we're serving others. Mm 
And so Bill, who may know how to fix a lawnmower, mm-hmm. will use his skills to fix a lawnmower. And he will go out with Jeffrey. Well, Jeffrey's volunteering from Powell United Methodist Church in Powell, Ohio, outside of Columbus. And the two of them are working on that lawnmower together for Mrs. Jones, whose lawnmower is broken. And together, they are serving someone else. This concept of do with is critical because it helps people see that they have something to contribute. They're not just the object of our of our ministry um, as they're not just our project. And I'll just give you an old phrase. God spoke to me years ago. I've not given you projects in poverty. I've given you people. So do with is, is riddled and w- woven into everything we do. And let me just say, along with that comes the, the yeah, vision for, sure. for mutuality. Uh, mutuality is a significant achievement that we pray for in all of our relationships. As we cross the lines of class and race and Someone said, well, maybe the most subversive act you will eat, you will do this week is to sit down and eat with someone who's not like you. And we're constantly crossing the lines of class and race. And we want to do it in a way that gives people dignity and a, a way that opens the door for mutuality. And because something happens, particularly in the transmission of the gospel, in my view, when we have some forms of mutuality in the relationship, it's not just, now let me just veer off and tell you, I've been, I've been, I've chosen to be without a home in 11 cities in my life. Uh, I was what we call homeless by choice. I had to sit through sermons in many of those places as a condition of eating my meal. And to me, that was, um, that was very uncomfortable and it robbed me of a sense of dignity. In many of those situations, there was nothing I could do. I was just the recipient. And I think we can create forms of ministry where you're just not left as the recipient. I know we have to start there sometimes, but you're not left there. And I better pause because you may have a follow-up. I really love that because I think, at least for me, I oftentimes just think about doing for. So I'm really grateful to just have the thought about doing with and to be able to think about um, learning from other people that maybe I sometimes think about just doing for, you know, but seeing the gift that they also bring well, to the table. Or, a little you know, further, things like that. Um, so if you're stuck in the do for, and, and again, a lot of, a lot yes, of us start there. So there's nothing wrong with there. And in a lot of our relationships, that's just where they start. But if you're stuck there, then you, you remember, you realize that power is on your side. You're the good person doing something for someone else. Mm. And what we've got to think through in our relationships as we're building community across the lines of class, and we're, we're, we're carrying this in our soul, Lord, how can I tell them about you? How can I explain to you the transformation that has happened in my life? Where is the door? And I can talk about our philosophy of witness in just a few minutes. But as you're, as you're at this threshold, you, you want yeah. to remember that you're, you need to take opportunity to release your power as much as you can, because power is good, Yet those who deny they have it are dangerous. So we oftentimes get a lot of um, good feelings by what we do for other people. And initially, there's nothing wrong with that, that, except that it becomes maybe an addiction or the reason why we continue. But there is a messiness as we get into do with and as we get into be with that makes most of us very uncomfortable. And it is an awkwardness. And we all have to go through this if we're going to have a breakthrough in these relationships. Hmm, for sure. What does 
what does being with look like in a relationship? Because it sounds like, and I may be wrong, so feel free to correct me, but it sounds like we start with do for most of the time, move to do with, and then end with be with. So what does that look like? So sometimes that process can happen in just a short period of time. Today we have a group that works hosts around 20 or 30 different short-term mission teams from all over the United States. We have a group today from um, Illinois, and they're um, they're doing some things at one of our seniors' homes, and it's intentional that maybe one or two people are just being with, they're just visiting. Uh, now, sometimes the, the person will participate in what we're doing. They want to, we want to create space for that. Other times they're in bed or they're unable to get up. And so it's really important that we create space. It's a key word in my vocabulary, create space for God to work and that we set this time aside and uh, we're just listening and being and we're learning. We come. Our primary identity should be learners. Wherever you go, however long you've been doing this, and I've been doing this a long time, our primary identity should be learners. We should be teachable. <clears throat> now, there are five things that I would say we're, we're mining for or searching or trying to learn um, in these relationships. And I would coach these volunteers to look for these things. In other words, as you enter into conversations and you're being with, look for these five things. Number one, learn about the history of the of the of the people and the values that are of the history of the of the region you're in. Like we're in Appalachia, um, learn about the values of the people. Learn about the beauty of this region. Learn about their needs, and of course, learn about the people. But you've got to sequence your conversation. You can't just dive into that. You have to kind of hold those five things, history, value, needs, people, beauty, in your heart and wait for the conversation to move in that direction and then ask inquisitive questions. And then, of course, don't be afraid to talk about you. Mm -hmm. This is a two-way street. And if you come as a learner, chances are you're going to learn something. How have you seen good works bring hope to the variety of people that you're working with? So these are very intuitive. They're difficult to measure. Um, I resist sometimes the um, anecdotes and stories. I actually can't keep up. There are so many ways in which we are present with people. No doubt. And we're fixing things. And just to clarify, God has not called us to fix people. God has called us to love people. But we do fix things. Um, right. And we suffer with people. Right. And we we tolerate and and we put up with things that because, and I'm not suggesting anyone should put up with abuse, never, uh, verbal abuse, never. But uh, mm-hmm. there are days in which we tolerate a lot because we look at the, the pain and the suffering that people are going through when they're without a home and they've lost their connecting points and they don't have any income and you know all the variables that go along with that. And and there's there's suffering. Long suffering is a fruit of the spirit, but there is clearly suffering as one of the ways that we eventually get to the place of hope. But honestly, it starts with listening. I mean, we don't have answers. We come with with eyes to, to observe and hearts to listen, um, and it takes time. And I would just offer you that listening is an act of worship. Um, Good Works has a paradigm of worship, and I could talk about that if you want to later, but uh, listening is one clear yeah. way in which we express our worship. And you and I have talked to people who go on and on and on, and you're looking for the exit or you're looking for the pause and you're looking for, you kind of want to say, <laughs> you know, 
And I have found over the years that, and I just had one of these recently, that the best thing to do is say, Lord, this is for you. I'm listening. And it's in listening that we find that place that we can offer, sometimes, not all the time, that we can offer words and compassion and empathy that ultimately leads to hope. Um, so those are just things I've experienced over time. But w- there is long suffering. There is awkwardness. And this this isn't like a simple methodology that you can prescribe to someone. Yeah, for sure. It sounds a lot like it's built on just relationships and getting to know people. Yes. Yes. So I'll, let me extract a few principles from Luke 4. <clears throat> Jesus, of course, and most of your listeners will know, he stands up in the synagogue to read from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me or upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach or bring good news to the poor. And in, in good works, we try to unpack that with some questions. And then we have what I call best practices. And the questions are, number one, who are the poor? Again, I'm not fond of that phrase, but I'm using it in this context. Who are the people that struggle mm-hmm. with too much month left over at the end of their income? They may be employed part-time, um, but who are they? And, and let's start with their first and last names. Because until we get to people and names, we're bordering on objectifying. So, and then secondly, what what is it that they struggle with? And do we even want to know what SNAP is? Like, for example, there are 400 people in in the county that I live in. They're going to be cut off from SNAP on April 1st. So I try to follow this. What is HUD? What Mm. is SNAP? What is WIC? What What are the terms that a lot of people in poverty know about and struggle with? And can we become familiar with that in order to become familiar with the particulars? I will tell you that transportation is a number one issue that often separates, um, urban poverty from rural poverty, making rural poverty worse. And if you did not grow up with transportation, you have a whole different sense of time. So that's a tangent. We can go back to that. So Mm -hmm. the first question is, who are the poor and then what do they struggle with? The next question is, what is the gospel? And I say, well, what, what is the good news that we can convey to them in the particular context in which we're living? And people in rural Appalachia, you know, there you, there are some other ways to think about this, maybe in an urban area or maybe in Brazil. I mean, you have to find the context, understand it to know the best practices. So who are the poor? Um, what do they struggle with? What What is the gospel? And then the last of these questions is, how do we bring it? What are our methodologies? And our, our methodologies, are we borrowing them or are we innovative and creative with these methodologies. Now, if I could just go on a tangent with you before I get to the four uh, best practices, my favorite New Testament story oh, sure. is in Mark 2, where these four guys bring their friend to Jesus. Most of your listeners know the story. The line is long, mm-hmm. the sun's going down, and one of the four gets an idea. You know what the idea is. I have an idea. Let's Let's not wait in line. Let's take him through the roof. So the one guy has to persuade the other three to do something they've never done before, probably never done, I'm, I'm assuming. And they he has to kind of persuade them. But they're all moved by the desperation to get their friend to Jesus. And the end of this is they want to hear, their, they want their friend to hear Jesus say, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? 
And they don't know that, but that's really the end that we want for the people we're learning to love. Now, um, one guy's got to persuade the other three, and who knows what that convers- how that conversation went. Uh, one guy might have said, well, this is Bob's house. Bob, I'll never hear the end of this. You know, but eventually, uh, they all four had to, <laughs> had to do this you know, for it to work. And so they went up, they took their paralyzed friend, they put him through the roof, they broke all the rules. And there are times to break rules, particularly when we're trying to get someone to a place where they can hear Jesus say, which is easier. They, but they had risk. This is one of the essential qualities that I pray that I would continue to have. Secondly, they had innovation. Thirdly, they had ingenuity. And lastly, they had creativity. And these are the characteristics of ministry that connects people. Um, So I just go off on this tangent before I tell you these four best practices, because you said relationships are really important. And yes, the first of the four best practices is this. It is about relationship, not program. And so we're asking, how do we build these relationships? Mm Will this word that I'm using diminish trust or will it build trust? Will these actions that I'm taking, will they diminish trust or will they build trust? Well, why is that important? Because trust is the second most important ingredient that goes in the best practices. It's first about relationship. And I have a whole essay on this called The Continuum of Maturity. It's second about building trust. And how can we build higher and higher levels of trust? Why is this important? Because eventually we're going to plant the seed of the good news of the gospel, which is a person. And we're going to introduce them to a person. And the higher level of trust you have, the more likely that seed is to to bear fruit. Thirdly, um, the uh, let's see if I can get these in the right order. Mm -hmm. Is this uh, an environment where somehow the recipients can leave their old identity and graduate and become a participant in some way. Are we, because that's one of the best practices. Okay. Uh, are we creating a structure or do we, do we have to keep people in that? Oh yeah, you're the poor person that I'm supposed to minister to today. How are we building bridges for people to come mm-hmm. out of their old identity as poor and needy into a new identity, which we use the phrase volunteer in our ministry. Yeah, you were kind of leading me right into my next question. What about the philosophy of witness and how does that relate to the best practices that you just shared with us? So with sharing our faith, uh, we have a couple very basic entry points that we encourage our staff and volunteers to start with. Uh, The first is um, um, tell them your story, right? Uh, Because it if you don't have a story, you got a problem, right? Uh, there's always a story. Uh, yes. We know in uh, Revelation they overcame by the blood of the lamb, blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. There's always a story. So keep that in mind as we go to these four principles. Number one, earn the right to speak. Don't assume that your title or, pre- or position or credentials somehow gives you a right to talk to somebody about your faith. You earn that right, and that's through some interaction. Number two, um, get permission. And this, because we're working with people who are very vulnerable and who often fear that where their next meal is coming from Mm -hmm. or where they're going to uh, stay tonight uh, may be dependent upon them giving the correct answer, get permission. Ask if it would be okay if you shared your story. And if they say no, well, then number three is use respect. 
if people don't feel respected, then you're not going to have much fruit in the relationship. Respect is, is a non-negotiable. And so, and then lastly, assume God is at work in this relationship way before you ever met this person. And your question mm-hmm. would be, Lord, how can I further your work? What have you found in good works to be the relationship between loving God and loving our neighbor, like Jesus talks about in the Bible? Well, I would say, I could probably do this in a song. It might be more impactful. <laughs> uh, the two <laughs> the two are mystically interrelated and inseparable. I'm loving God. I'm loving mm-hmm. God. Now I'm finished with that. <clears throat> now that's over. Now it's time to love my neighbor once again. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. It, it just doesn't. We are always loving God when we're loving our neighbor. And when we're loving God, we think we're like just me and the Lord together. God is working in this, this grace to expand our perspective of the kingdom of God in loving our neighbors. The two are very, very inseparable. And I don't want to diminish the importance of solitude, the importance of quiet time, the importance of time set aside just to be alone with God. That's essential. I tell our community, we those are non-negotiables. If you don't have that in your life, <clears throat> you're going to get into a situation that's going to be a problem for you. Jesus said, <clears throat> apart from me, you can do nothing. Mm-hmm. This is in John 15. Well, I'm going to challenge that right now. I would offer that apart from, if we're not if we're not abiding and we have power over in relationships and we have a lot of responsibility and we make a lot of decisions, apart from him, we can create a disaster. So I, uh, I, I think that I'm trying to keep mm-hmm. this in balance. We need those essential times with God. But ultimately, there is a mystical line between loving God and loving people. And it gets even more mystical when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And of course, you're taking the experience of what you've experienced from Christ in your own life, and you're transferring it. It's never sequential like that. So that's my first attempt to answer the question. It sounds like that we cannot love God as we were meant to love God outside of community. Is that, would you say that's an accurate um, statement? It feels exactly accurate, but I don't ever want to absolutize that. Uh, there, you know, I see through a glass dimly, and so <laughs> no, I yeah. yeah, I have this thing about absolute for sure. I have this um, thing about but I do absolutes and opinions. Uh, yes, and and, and I, I I have a very strong opinion that I believe absolutely, and that is that I don't have to have an opinion on everything. <laughs> I hope you got that. No, for sure, for sure. <laughs> But what is the importance of community in our relationship with God? So Jesus said, I will build my church, my Christian community. Uh, He never said, I will build my individual Christians. Um, We realize the fullness Mm. of God in community. Uh, We have many different gifts and abilities, but we get the best picture of who Christ is through the body of Christ. And if I could just go on another tangent with you, the, um, the idea of being the body of Christ in the world really appeals to me. Um, 
And I'm not sure mm-hmm. that that can happen in the current paradigm of church meetings. I think that we must learn mm-hmm. how to function as the body. And that means we make mistakes. We say, I'm sorry. Uh, there isn't anyone that's perfect. And we try hard to do better. Um, the, uh, the, the realization of who Christ Jesus is is experienced in the functioning of the body of Christ. And if I could just say, in the world, for the world, for the glory of God. And obviously, I have more to say about community. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with Dr. Christine Pohl, along with 20 others, on this book that was written and produced in 2012 called Living in the Community. It's all about the four practices, uh, gratitude, hospitality, truth-telling, and promise-keeping. And we have done a lot in that arena in our community here, working uh, very, very intentionally around practices related to gratitude and hospitality and truth telling, which is always hard, and mm-hmm. promise keeping. So it was kind of breaking up because we're doing this online. It was kind of breaking up at the end. So I didn't hear what you said about you could talk more about something related to community and something like that. Well, community is hard, and there, it's all about working through relationships, and your brokenness comes up. And ultimately, we have to be having mm-hmm. a willing spirit to work through the difficult times. There's times of celebration. There's times of suffering. Um, and I find that um, uh, the work of community is also an act of worship. Uh, so we have times of celebration. And we have times of working through difficulty, and we have times of serving others together. Um, but uh, uh, it's hard for me to, to to read Jesus' phrase, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it, without reading the phrase, I will build my Christian community. Uh, and I like to use the phrase, ordinary people through whom God can do extraordinary things. And our role, all of us, if we're in the community, is to yield, is to have a yielded spirit, a teachable spirit. I was just sharing this with our mm-hmm. community this morning, how important it is for all of us to just continue to maintain a teachable spirit. Um, so one of our deep values is the unity of the mm-hmm. body, which is, in my view, the answer to, to the prayers of God, that they may be one. Um, in Ephesians 4, we read that God has given the, the body unity. It's a gift. It's our job to preserve it. It takes work to preserve the unity that God has given us as a gift. And it's always the work of humility and forbearance and bearing with one another. And God will give us grace if we're willing to choose humility instead of pride. One thing I know for certain from scripture, God opposes the proud. Well, I'll just keep that in the back of my mind when I'm a uh, Mm-hmm. Of these things, but as we choose humility and as we choose to yield, um, it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility and we don't have jobs to do. We just this is the way we carry those things out. Um, and how do you know whether you have a teachable spirit mm-hmm. or whether you actually have humility? You and I don't know. We really don't know until someone comes. Yeah, along. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, until someone comes along and wants to admonish us or correct us or even rebuke us. And then you'll know whether you, what's going on in your heart. 
what's going on in your soul. You'll, you'll touch your own resistance and you'll touch your own brokenness. And I think this is essential for the, mm. for the community to grow in the awareness. Um, in the Proverbs, we read a rebuke uh, to a wise man is better than a hundred lashes to a fool. And I think we're supposed to welcome that. Now, again, there are some qualities here. You want to know that you're getting a rebuke from someone that you trust, you, that loves you, uh, that you feel safe with. These are important qualities. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we should um, be able to navigate people we don't know as well as people we do. But one of the evidences of whether you really, I really have humility is how I respond when someone wants to admonish me or even rebuke me and what's going on inside me. This is an essential part of building community. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are just some things that sit in the background of truth-telling as we practice it here. What if as you're going through life and you want a teachable spirit, but you realize that you don't have one, then what do you do? How do you get a teachable spirit? Well, you know, I don't uh, certainly don't feel like I'm the expert on this. There's probably some brokenness in there somewhere. There is some hurt. Uh, sometimes there is an incident. Someone could have been traumatized, and there's something to go back and have to like examine and work on in the presence of God and another person, in the presence of God and another person, and to begin to talk about those things. And those are hard and painful. But oftentimes that's at the root of why, or fear is at the root. In other words, we think, well, the last person that that yelled at me and screamed at me and called me names. So I'm afraid that you might do that too. Um, Those are legitimate issues. Um, But sometimes, and I don't mean to be oversimplistic here, it involves repentance. You know, Lord, just forgive me and ask me, I ask for Mm -hmm. grace to to make a turn here because there's something in me that is just resisting. And it could be the personality or the way they're coming to me, or it could be something in me. Uh, There's a lot of different variables, but I think God wants us to, as the psalmist writes, a a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Um, I think it's important that we seek to cultivate that. It's one of my daily prayers. Lord, help me to choose humility today instead of pride. Um, And so God can work God's grace in us Mm -hmm. around these matters if we are willing. I want to talk a little bit now. This is kind of backing up to going back to Good Works specifically. But you've talked a little bit about some of the initiatives that you guys offer. Um, And I know you have several, but could you just run through? I don't know if you want to do all of them or just pick a handful and just talk to us a little bit about some of those. So like a lot of organizations, it, depending on who's counting, right? We we could have twenty of these different initiatives. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. Um, uh, we have the transformation station. We have Friday Night Life. If someone is listening, they go to the webpage. They can read about these. They can see videos on these. Um, we have work retreats, which are short-term mission teams. Uh, we have the Timothy House. Uh, these are some of our larger initiatives. And many of our volunteers are, we have about 1,100 volunteers. So a lot of our volunteers are in some of these larger initiatives. We have wow. senior friends. We went through nine years of an agricultural initiative we call Good Works Gardens. We're not doing that this year. We're praying God's going to send us somebody that would serve in that arena. Um, so these are the larger initiatives. Friday Night Life began in 1993. We're about to celebrate the beginning of the 28th year of a, of a community coming together for a meal um, we start at 4.30. It ends at 
7.30. It's a three-hour tour. <laughs> we do this every Friday night, 15 years. <laughs> year. And um, it's amazing. It's a phenomenon. We have tons of teens that come, not because they have to come, because they want to come. God is doing an amazing work there with our volunteers and our staff and our sponsors. Um, it is subversive because we're constantly bringing together the haves and the have-nots in the community with each other. It's really inspiring to me to see it. I'm there most weeks, um, and it's full of humor. It's We celebrate mm-hmm. people's birthdays. We write our, wrote our own birthday song. Uh, there's education. We have this series we're doing right now called Talk to a Nurse. Um, and it's a whole phenomenon of experience. We hold it six months of the year outside, picnic style. We hold it six months of the year inside. Um, it's, I mean, I could say more. It's, it's really amazing. I find a lot of joy. It's very intergenerational. The oldest person to come is 95. We just celebrated his birthday two weeks ago. And the youngest is probably under a year old. Wow. So it's, um, it's like a congregation. And people are, you know, people get older and they pass away. There's somewhere between two and 300 people that participate over the course of the year, of which fortunately not more than 120 to 150 come every week. But it's really our connecting point. We don't use a lot of power in that structure. We don't have a lot of control over what people say. And we, we create structure, but um, it's really it's really cool what happens. So that's a, a big initiative. If you have any, I'm happy to answer a question on that, or I can go on to another one. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. So feel free to go on to another initiative. So the transformation station, the term we use today, I'm not sure if I was naming it today, if I'd use the same term, but we started about 15 years ago because I was was really wanting to answer a question uh, related to the third way. In our culture, it seems like if you're going to help people who are struggling with poverty, you either give them stuff or you sell them stuff. And I knew there was something more. So we created this concept um, that we borrowed from Habitat for Humanity called Sweat Equity. And we po- we borrowed from uh, public mm-hmm. broadcasting the concept called Thank You Gifts. And we combined these, we cross-pollinated these ideas. And now people volunteer time in exchange for their time. I alluded this a little while ago. They get points in exchange for the points. They can get a car. They can get okay. a bicycle. They can get a washing machine. So they sign up by, they call, we do an application, uh, they come in face-to-face, we do an orientation, and we move them from an old identity called needy to a new identity called volunteer. This is profound. This is substantial. It's significant. And then yes. they arrive and they work alongside other volunteers, and then they do things that are related to their skills and abilities, things that give them joy. They may, you know, they may be cutting the grass. They could be cooking. They could be, as I said earlier, fixing a lawnmower. They could be painting. We try to form opportunities that relate to people's skills and abilities by giving them a sense of dignity and opportunity to serve mm-hmm. others. And um, as I think I said this, we just provided car number 185. That's 185 families who have donated cars to us. It's really amazing. amazing. And none of them have come from dealerships. Uh, some yeah. of those have come from Wilmore, thankfully. Uh, if you know anyone that would like to donate a car, we would be delighted, wow. you know. Um, the cars go to the people and uh, yeah. it's just amazing. Uh, this program continues to thrive, just continues to thrive. Let's do a couple more initiatives, maybe the Timothy House, because um, I would love to learn more about that. So we started caring for people without homes in my home. And uh, as I said, I volunteered for the first three years. And then the fourth year, we received a staggering $300 a month 
which was a lot of money uh, back in 1983 or 84. So, um, we moved out of my house in the end of 84. We yeah. purchased this property on uh, the west side of Athens. We didn't name that building the Timothy House till years later. And we continue to provide a safe, these are key phrases here, clean, temporary place for people who are experiencing homelessness here in the rural segment of Ohio. Um, this is really important to us. Safe, clean, temporary, very stable. That is predictable. Um, and so we created a structure there. We have forms mm-hmm. there and uh, we're caring for men, women, and children. We have several teenagers right now with their mom and several single adults, men and women. And we do our best to love them. And involved in that is a high level of accountability, good communication. Uh, we have a zero tolerance for um, unprescribed medication. Um, but we try to work with people and people often ask, well, do you have a length of stay? And we've never had a length of stay. Uh, the state tried to dictate one to us once, and, and uh, that just didn't work. We have a different metric that we use to move people, um, and I'll just tell you briefly what they are. Number one, uh, have, have they been deceiving us or have they been honest with themselves and us? We take hours to unpack what that means, but let's just say mm-hmm. that the woman at the well who Jesus said, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband, she... Jesus and her had still had a relationship there, even though there was something really awkward about that story. All right. So we know that people often will not tell us the mm-hmm. whole truth. We just try to work with them as best as we can. We're not black and white. I could tell you a story about what I went through when I was homeless in Lexington around that teachable moment related to that. But number one, are they are they being honest or are they intentionally deceiving us or are they being honest with themselves? All right. Number two, um, have they been able to get along with the structure? Mm-hmm. So we have a structure. We ask people to have a curfew at 10 o'clock. Uh, we ask people to get up in the morning at a certain time. We ask people to eat in certain locations. We ask people to smoke outside. There's a whole structure there that is a little inconvenient for some people, but it's not asking too much. Number three, um, mm-hmm. we, what are you doing to help yourself get out of here? It's a, it's a concept called shifting the burden. Now, my training was in social work, and this was never a question that we were given in caring for people. But I believe uh, in responsibility. So uh, responsibility, by the way, if I could define it, is helping people identify their abilities to respond to the situation that they are in right oh, now. Oh, that's so, good. So helping people see the importance of responsibility. What are you doing? And it's different for every person. It's not the same. Uh, a woman with five children under the age of five, and I, I know her, right? Um, she has a lot more limitations, and her mm-hmm. expectations are different than a single 22-year-old man. So what are you doing to help yourself get out of here is the third one. The fourth is your situation. What is unique about your situation? We just had a woman come in. She was eight and a half months pregnant. She was going to have a baby within the next two weeks. We didn't really ask a lot from her. And then she had her baby. And then she came back. We still didn't ask right. a lot from her, you know. So we take situations like that into consideration. Right. Yeah. Timothy House is just a house. It's got. Four- I'm sorry. You started to say something and I talked over you. That's right. Timothy mm-hmm. House is just a house. It's, it's located in the city of Athens on the bus route. And it's just a house. It's got four bedrooms. And um, it's an ordinary house in a neighborhood. And we have a strong commitment very strong commitment to the immediate neighbors who live right around us. And that's a story probably for another day. 
Okay. How do people hear about Good Works and become connected to it who may need um, a safe, clean, temporary place? Um, and then, yeah, we'll just start there. And then, as you say, Steph, I might ask more questions. Okay. So basically what we've done is we it's our responsibility to inform the places where people would be likely to connect at their point of need. So that includes social service agencies, religious communities, and um, uh, word, of, word of mouth or law, law enforcement. That's right. So uh, it's my responsibility in making sure that those who are at mm-hmm. the front end of those uh, industries or areas know about how to get connected to us. There's a whole form they can read and we send them. Um, and then there's word of mouth. People uh-huh. just find out. My friend stayed there. I heard I could get a place to stay and uh, they would call us. Is there a criteria for people to come or is everybody just welcome? Oh, yeah, there's a criteria, and we, we definitely cannot help some people. Uh, once in a while, I encourage my coworkers, close your eyes, bow your heads, click your heels together, repeat after me, I am not the Messiah. You know, when you're in this, uh, well, I am not the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> you know? So when you're in this kind of work, you want to help as many uh-huh. people as you can, but we have to create parameters of what we can and can't do. Uh, some people, their experience with mental illness is so severe that we are not the people that could be assisting them right now. We just had a situation recently or, you know, they're, they're high. They're just, they're strung out on something and we can't assist them at that point. Uh, we uh, did not do drug tests for 35 years. We mm-hmm. do them now. So there are limitations. If someone is verbally abusive at the point of an interview, uh, chances are we will slow that down and um, we will not. Now I know people are desperate and they say things out of their desperation. Um, but those are, there's always limitations. Uh, of who we feel like we can help. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned a couple times while we were talking that you chose to be or to live without a home on 11 different occasions. And I know from looking at your website, you learned different things in each city. But if we could, let's just um, start with talking about Lexington and what that experience was like for you and kind of what your teachable moment was, what you learned. So I actually did Lexington twice, once before the, the program they have there called is the Hope Center. Uh, the first time I, I stayed in the Salvation Army in, in a place called the Way House. And um, I stayed the night with 150 strangers on the gymnasium uh-huh. floor. We were in line. We had to register. We got up to the to the point at which we got the piece of paper. It asked for our name. And the second question was home address. And I'm like, what is going on with these people? Uh, that seems kind of weird to me. So I the night, 150 people, yeah. got up in the morning. My buddy got me a job. I had prayed for a buddy. Okay, my buddy got me a job at McDonald's. Well, none of the jobs were at McDonald's. One was shoveling horse manure and the other was stripping tobacco. And I got in a, a job in Georgetown stripping tobacco. There is a story there, uh, maybe for another day. I, I got sick. I hitchhiked back from Circle 4 into the downtown area Um no, I'm sorry, I hitchhiked to Circle 4, and I walked from Circle 4 to the downtown area. It's a long walk. Um, and the guy comes up to me. He says, hey, man, let me, have yeah. some, let me have some money. I said, I don't have any money. I stayed where you stayed last night. He grabs my shirt. He pulls me right too close to his face, and he whispers in my ear. He said, I said, let me have some money. Well, I was pretty shaken up at this point. I didn't know what to say. I had a dollar and change in my pocket, and I lied much more enthusiastically the second time and, and raised my voice and said, I don't have any money, man. I stayed where you stayed. Well, eventually he let go. And then I got by myself. My heart eventually slowed down. And I thought 
I'm not a liar. Why did I lie? Mm -hmm. And it hit me in a millisecond. I lied in order to survive. That was a pivotal moment in my understanding on how to help you. Um, And then I did 10 more cities after that. uh, And they all have stories, but I I don't know that we could do that. That's another podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we might have to have you back to talk about each of those. Um, Why did you choose to live without a home? So I knew there were things I didn't know. And, you know, we all have this, you know. And I, I knew that I needed to learn some things about particularly what it was like to be on the receiving side because I've only been on the power side. And so I, I, I went, but I was not prepared, mm, honestly, mm-hmm. for the emotional difficulties that I was going to experience in every one of these places. Um, and when I did Cincinnati, I had a very difficult experience mm-hmm. in racism. And I was on the other side of that equation where somebody was after me because I was white. and and these experiences were so helpful to me uh, after I'm done. Now, I don't like this. It's not like I look forward to these things. I do write about them and uh, I do speak about them. But uh, there, I, I know in order to do what we do, I have to experience some of these things. How did you come to that decision that you needed? Because I think it's a really cool thing that you do. Like, when did you first start doing that? Uh, I was on sabbatical at Asbury in uh, 1989. I was taking a class with Christine Pohl. At the time, it was called Servant as a Liberator. And it was my first trip called, it's a, there's a whole essay on this called Three Days in November. Uh, I just know I needed to do this. And I went, I got dropped off. And um, so that was the first. And then uh, you know, the wow. other cities, the most recent one was um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, which has a story of uh, a very interesting story in and of itself, but I'm looking at our clock and I'm like, I don't know how much time we have to go into all these. Stuff. I'm happy to keep talking. But I, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. maybe just tell the Columbus story because I can't just leave that being so curious and then we can wrap it up if that sounds good to you. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm still trying to learn, but uh, in 2014, the state of Ohio had been funding good works for 23 consecutive years and they changed the rules and the rules were unethical and immoral. And I'm like, does anyone see this? So I made an appointment with my state representative to meet with the officials at the um, state of Ohio. It's now called Ohio Development Services. And the appointment was for Monday. But I decided I would go and choose to be without a home in downtown Columbus on Saturday. I got dropped off. I went into the shelter and the guy says to me, can I help you? And I said, yes, I need a place to stay. And he says, well, maybe you don't know anything about Columbus. In Columbus, you call a 1-800 number and they place you in a shelter. I said, okay, well, that's fine. So he gave me the, the number and I called. They had a pay phone in their lobby and I heard a voice at the other end of the um, call. All of our representatives are working with other customers. Please stay on the line and you'll be helped by the most next available representative. I said, okay, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. At an hour and a half, and I'm standing there and I'm getting a little tired standing, a guy from the shelter, one of the residents comes up and looks me in the eye and says, buddy, you, you need to get off the phone right now. I said, yes, sir. And I hung up the phone. I went back to the desk and the people at the desk said, well, what did they tell you? And I said, they never answered the phone. And I kind of felt like they were thinking I was lying. But, you know, you don't know what they didn't say I was lying. So they said, you go back to that phone. You call again. I said, yes, sir. So I went back. I called the one number. And sure enough, all of our representatives <laughs> are working with other customers. Please stay on the line. 10 minutes, 20 minutes. All right, at 30 minutes, this guy comes on the phone. He goes, 
Uh, hi, this is Jason. How can I help you? I felt like saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. But nevertheless, um, uh, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I said, Jason, I was told to call this number because I need a place to stay. And Jason says, social security number, please. I said, uh, I gave him my real social security number. Next question. Date of birth. I gave him my real date of birth. Next question. Name. I'm thinking, could you have started with a name? I mean, it just seems so dehumanizing. Next question. Where did you stay last night? Yeah. I said, Jason, honestly, if it's okay with you, I just don't think I can talk about that right now. I mean, I really didn't know what to say, but that was the best thing I could come up with. He says, no problem. Uh-huh. When you're ready to talk about that, call me back. Click. Oh, my. Welcome to Columbus, Ohio. Well, there's more to that story, but I'll stop there. Um, I found it to be extremely dehumanizing. Was it hard for you, even though it was only for a short time, was it hard for you to regain um, your human dignity and your your own personal um, emotional health after that? Well, there is recovery from every one of these incidences. And I try to set a day aside just to recover from every one of them uh, emotionally. But what I found mm-hmm. is um, uh, I'm not really homeless. And I know that. They don't know Mm -hmm. that. All these places, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Akron, Ohio, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Jacksonville, Florida, they don't know that. But I know that. I know that I can get out. In fact, in Cincinnati, I had to get out. There was so many risks there. I finally got out. But I know that I'm not really, really homeless and that I can get out. So that helps me to navigate the the difficulties of the incident. But I do learn uh, and I do go back and I look at different ways in which we're functioning in our ministry. And I ask, are we doing anything that could be interpreted as dehumanizing? If someone is listening and wants to take a next step with Good Works, what are some ways that they can get involved? So if you're local, of course, you can volunteer with us. Um, if you're not local, you can uh, do a week of service. It's a short-term internship we have for anyone that wants to come for a week. People come all the time. And... Uh, it's fun and we love it. Uh, you come in on, you know, like Sunday and you stay yeah. the following Saturday. It doesn't cost you anything. There is an application process. We want you to think through some things. Uh, then we have longer term internships. We have an internship we call Appalachian Immersion, which is a four month internship, which you can renew over time. Then we have a summer internship, which is nine weeks. All of our internships do pay stipends. They're all residential. Well, most of them are residential. We, so we provide housing and utilities and most food. And then you get a stipend. Um, so those are connecting points. And then we host lots of short-term mission teams, uh, or what we we use the phrase work retreats because we do a lot of reflection in uh, these visiting groups. Uh, and people are scheduled. We're scheduling for the fall because of all our all of our spring and summer are booked up for 2020. But if there's someone that wants to come for a weekend in the fall or even a week, uh, just contact us through the Good Works website email. We're happy to. Or if you just want to come and visit, uh, we'd be delighted to have you just come and visit. Yeah, for sure. And we'll link to all of the ways to contact all of that. We'll link it all out in the show notes so people will be able to find that easily. Okay. So before we wrap up the interview, is there anything else you want to say that we haven't already talked about? Well, you know, I'm just thankful and grateful. You know, 
our one of our core values here is Psalm 127, chapter 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. I'm just thankful. God invited me mm. to do this thing, and I've lasted for a pretty long time. But it's by the invitation of God. And one day, you know, God's going to ask me to do something else, I'm sure, or take me out. I This is God's work. I just feel that it's a privilege and an honor. Now, there are hard days, uh, and there are days I'm, I'm struggling. But overall, this is a privilege and an honor, and I just feel so thankful. And I hope that when people come and visit us, they, they get the virus of being grateful and thankful, and they find the joy uh, of being able to serve and the privilege it is to be introduced to people. Um, so that's probably what I would say wrapping up. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we have one question that we always ask everybody as we end the podcast. Because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one one practice? It can be spiritual or something else that is helping you thrive in your life and ministry right now. Well, song is one of the things, uh, and I think that many believers can make up their own songs. I have so many that I just make up. Uh, we don't need you know, you don't need to be Chris Tomlin. You can make up a song and it could be between, can just be between, between <laughs> you and God. Um, I found the power of melody to carry me along when yeah. my emotions are taking me one way. Um, you know, sing to the Lord a new song. The psalmist understood this. But I think that um, creatively singing, uh, whether it's other people's songs or your songs, um, asking God, Lord, would you put a song in me help carry me through this day. Please put a song in my heart, a song of praise. Um, and uh, we have a pretty broad paradigm mm. of worship, uh, maybe uh, a discussion for a different day, a different podcast that, that is, uh, but what singing is only one form of the much broader vision, vision of worship. Uh, people want to learn more. They can read our, our document called vision of hope right on you can click on it from the front page of our website. And once again, we'll link all that out so people will be sure to find it. So thank you so much, Keith. I have really enjoyed learning more about good works and just getting to know you better. I know you've come to the seminary campus a few times and we've never had the chance to talk. So I'm glad that we were able to do that today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Keith Wasserman. Just really appreciate the opportunity to get to know him better and appreciate his passion and love for God and the way he demonstrates that by loving others. So if you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to go ahead and subscribe. And as always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. So have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.